0: Of the Holy Spirit to deal with it before saying too much, but having been given this information, I thought this might be the last opportunity for this man to ever hear the gospel and respond to it. So I took uh, quite some time to go over the truth, share it with him, and when I finished, I, I felt compelled to ask him to respond. I mean, I may never see him again. I mean, this is the most crucial thing in anybody's life, whether they realize it or not. We're only in this world for a very short span of time. So I asked him, you know, know, based on what I have told you, shared with you, would you like to receive Christ as your Savior? Would you like to place your faith in him? And he said, no. I said, well, would you do one thing for me? Would you think about it? And if you'll think about it, I'll come back, speak with you another time. He said, yes, I'll think about it. So I I left. I went back, and called my friend, told him what had transpired. Told him I'm going to go back and see him again very shortly. uh, No success at this point. So uh, probably about one day went by. I don't know, maybe two. I went back. I went to the room. I went in the room. There's nobody there. Bed's made that way. Well, my worst fears was that uh, was that he had passed away. So I inquired, and back in those days, small community, they weren't quite so strict about giving out information. So, uh, they told me that he had been discharged and so forth. And so I thought, well. I hope he thinks about it. That's that's all I can, can say to myself. And uh, I was kind of down about it all. Here's this man's last hope and he said no. And um, I think maybe that's where we're at in our minds when we finish the first two parables. We kind of <clears throat> said, well I take a fatalistic view of you know, a lot of people just never going to come to Christ. Well, that's true. Jesus wanted us to know that because he, he did not want that fact to deter us from being a witness. He tells us ahead of time the parable of the sower. He four soils represent four hearts. Three of them are false, they, they outwardly accept the tenets of Christianity. But they never really yield their heart and life to Christ in faith. And only the one, the one that fell on the good soil, is said to understand the gospel and to go on and bear fruit. Then we come to the parable of the tares. You got these false impersonators, these, these hypocrites, the tares that exists throughout the whole period. Christ's first uh, coming to his second. And they're there. And, and they, they created a lot of problems, obviously, because they're there because of Satan's work. Satan is the sower of those seeds. So as we come to the next parable, the parable of the mustard seed, we we kind of need a little different perspective. A little different type of encouragement, and that's what Jesus was giving to his disciples at this point. So let's go back. Seven parables here in Matthew 13. We went over this chart. By the way, I have several photocopies up here if you want to take one. A few of them are corollary; the rest are not. Uh, I know several have asked for. This is not my chart. Can't find the source, but I've been, I've superimposed this upon it kingdom of heaven stretches from the first coming to the second coming so it incorporates the tribulation period as well as the church age. We're at the third parable now, the parable of the mustard seed verses 31 and 32. So let me read it to you quickly. And he presented another parable to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed which a man took and sowed in his field. And and it is smaller than all other seeds, but when it is full grown, it is larger than uh, larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. And that's it. And he doesn't interpret this. He doesn't explain it in the Scripture. I'm pretty sure he told the disciples what it meant, but that's not recorded. The first two we have the recorded explanation Jesus gave to help us understand it. So this seems to be so straightforward. The Lord didn't seem to, since it was necessary, to tell us by way of relaying what Jesus may have said. Now, a quick review here. The parable of the sower reveals the human responses to the kingdom of heaven. Remember the first one? The seed that fell on the hardened ground, never understood. That's outright rejection of the gospel message. The second two, the hardened ground, or not the hardened ground, but the, the, the rocky ground, the bedrock underneath the soil. That, being, that was interpreted to mean that you know when those plants died, these were people that superficially accepted Christianity kind of as a religion, so to speak. And then when persecution and trials come, they fall away from it all. And then you have the the thorns, which infest the ground, and there he said, you know, well, people just, you know, again, they're superficial in their acceptance of Christ. It's not a heart thing, it's kind of an outward action. Uh, They fall away when they get distracted by the cares of this world and the pursuit of money. These are human, responses to the seed, which was the word of God. The second parable, the parable of the tares, reveals the satanic response to the kingdom of heaven. Or these plants that grow the tares are because an enemy comes and sows those seeds in the man's field. Satan uses hypocrisy within the scope of Christendom and it has been far-reaching obviously in history. I mean, I don't know what the numbers are, but it's kind of interesting to me. It always is that three-fourths of those or, well, two-thirds of those who profess to receive Christ in the sower are not real. And you come to the second one, you've got all these tears. You can't tell them apart. He says, don't, don't even try to judge it and tear it apart and tell you know, and, and deal with it, leave it for the final judgment. So, but if Satan can muddy the waters and confuse everybody and, and use uh, hypocrisy and evil within the scope of Christendom to turn people away from Christ, he will do it. In fact, he has done it. Now we come to the parable of the mustard seed and earth. the context. The first two parables of the kingdom go together and characterize the period. The first two are a set. The second two, beginning with the mustard seed and going on to uh, incorporate the leaven, those two are a set. They're closely related. And then the third set, the third set is, I have my mind going to jump Value, the, the landowner who found the treasure and uh, the merchant who seeks the pearl. That's a set. So, this first two go together. And these first two both describe the relationship of both believers and unbelievers to the kingdom of heaven. The parable of the mustard seed now, as we move into the second set. Describes the huge increase of true believers during this time, and here is the encouragement. Here is the positive that Jesus puts out there for the disciples and for us. Let's talk about the mustard plant. The mustard plant, by the way, for the mustard on your hot dog, on your hamburger, this where it comes from. I think we all understand that. However, the mustard plant has all kinds of other uses, especially in the ancient world. The mustard seed is very small, but it grows into a large plant. Now, Jesus was not exaggerating. He's not using hyperbole. He's not trying to, you know, make this into something that's not for the purpose of seeing the contract. He's just talking about something they all knew and understood. It was an agricultural society. Mustard plants were known. uh, Everybody knew they grew large and they had a very small seed. I read where the mustard plant ranges up to as large as or as tall as 15 feet. It's a pretty good size. It would be the size of a, a tree. Now, by the way, wouldn't, we might not, we might think of it as a drug here in Texas when you look at these tall pines standing around here. But in Israel, from their perspective, they look like a tree. I know some some of you have been to Jerusalem, you don't see trees. You don't see trees in Judea. They're not there. You've got to go down the Jordan Valley. And then you you follow the Jordan River north of the Sea of Galilee. Well, there's trees all along the, the river. They're not large trees, but at least I I saw them from a distance. They looked like they were pretty small trees compared to what would be along a a water source here. So, this obviously was large from their perspective. Now, critics have objected to the phrase in verse 32. Look at it. Where it says, and I'm reading from the New American Standard, and becomes a tree. because it's an it's a herb, an herb, it's, it's not a tree. In a sense, would be like saying you know, my, my big tomato plant's a tree, it, it, it doesn't make any sense. They argue that mustard plants never become trees. So Jesus is just wrong, he's, he's, he's not informed. the uh, the scripture's not correct. However, Jesus wasn't defining the physical composition of a plant. He was simply making a comment as to its size. It's tree-like in size, that's, that's all he's saying. That would've been a common, maybe way of even talking about the mustard tree, you know, because of the size. A mustard plant can obviously become tree-like. Now what are we to make of the birds? Let me look at it again. Verse 32, and it is smaller, speaking of the seed, it's smaller than the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. By the way, I don't think I have this on your sheet or on, on this slide, but the, the, the critics not only object to him saying it's a tree, they also object to him saying the seed's the smallest. Because the mustard plant seed is not the smallest seed. But it was the smallest seed, agriculturally, that they planted. That's all he's saying. It's still pretty doggone small. But he would just say, it's the smallest seed you plant. I mean, he's talking about the, the sower sowing the field. He's talking about the, the, the sower and the tares. I mean, the, the field is planted. And it, it's, this is just an extension. I mean, he's talking in the sense of what they dealt with. But that was the smallest seed that they planted, and it became the largest plant. So, that in mind, let's, let's move to the birds. What's this about the birds coming lodging in the branches? Now, over the years, I've, I've heard this interpretation. The birds here represent evil because, in the parable, of the sower, the first soil, a hardened wayside everybody walked on. some of the the broadcast seed fell on, the birds come and eat the seed so it never takes root. And when Jesus interpreted that, he said, the birds represented Satan who plucks away the seed. We talked about how Satan blinds the minds of those who believe not. So, there are those who say, well, okay, you interpret the birds as Satan, evil, in Parable the sower. Therefore, the birds in the mustard seed have to be evil, and that the mustard seed not only indicates that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, including the church, the universal church, and the rest, has expanded greatly since the coming of Christ, but it has been infiltrated by a lot of evil. Now, that's a true statement. In fact, that's exactly what the parable of tears told us. <laughs> so you really don't need to say that again. <clears throat> so some people said they're symbolic of evil as they were in the parable of soa. No, I don't think so. They only provide evidence of the tree like nature of the mature mustard plant. He's just emphasizing the size. I mean, I, you don't see birds, you know, landing on your geranium, you know. And they pick a substantial plant to light on, <coughs> boost in, and build a nest in. This would be that type of plant. He's, he's just giving us evidence of the size. Remember, don't make a parable do what? All on all, all fours. Now, there are multiple (coughs) meanings within the parable. For example, the parable of the sower, you had the four soils. And they represented different responses to the seed, the word of God. But it's like spokes on the wheel, they all point to one (coughs) application. The application here is obviously the growth of the kingdom. Not the moral quality of it. So the, the external symbols got to point to the same thing. Here is your interpretation as, as I phrased it. You can phrase it various ways, but it, this is very simple. the kingdom of heaven will experience phenomenal growth. That's all this parable is saying to us. Now there are multiple ramifications of this. But this doesn't require a degree of theology to figure out. It's just straightforward. If you just keep that one interpretive principle in mind, don't make it walk on all fours. That means three things. That mean two things. That only means one thing. The only possible thing that could be in this particular parable is the phenomenal growth. Let's talk about the kingdom of heaven. You've seen this before, by the way. I have this chart also laying up here on the table. If so you'd like to have that. God created the world, God gave to Adam a certain measure of authority over this world. He gave him no meaning, as the scripture says. But when he yielded to Satan's will, Satan then usurped authority and became the god of this world, as Paul calls him, with a little G. And that then results in the kingdoms of this world, which Satan has control over. By the way, that's why nations and rulers and kings and politicians will never solve our problems. Now, next week we'll talk about those who may be in authority that are Christians and how they interact here. That's for next week. Week after next. What's that? Week after next. There's no ABF. (laughs) Week (laughs) after next. I'll probably be here next week wondering where you're at. (laughs) (laughs) So, when God establishes what he calls the kingdom of heaven, meaning that people come to, come into a relationship with Christ which changes their life. came to know Christ and put faith in Christ is when I was eight years old. But you couldn't tell it until I was probably 21 or 22 when I finally realized, you know, Jesus Christ is everything. He's my purpose. He's what I live for. He's the one we glorify and nothing else matters in comparison to that. And everything I do has got to reflect that. Whether I like it or not. Based on the scripture. But even at 21 or 22, as I look back on it, gee, is I'm not the same person I was back then. Thank God. Any of you want to go back and be the person you was at 21 or 22? God's power to transform us isn't complete and ultimate. The moment we're saved... But the Spirit of God comes into our heart and soul and gives us the power to be different. Power to be different than who we are. I've often used this illustration, but my first year in college, I had, a, I had a speech class. And I was absolutely, I hated to be up in front of people. I just dreaded Christmas and Easter in church where you had to get up and say your parts. you know, as a child. I, I hated it. I hated giving book reports. School. I was a nervous wreck. My first speech, my freshman year. By the time I was a senior in college, I was preaching, teaching. The first place I ever spoke to, the very first place, I was invited to speak. It was probably a church of three or four hundred people. And our college campus group was invited to come and have me get up and talk for five or ten minutes. And I was just like. I don't know what's going on here, but I'm not dreading this. And I walked up there, and I had absolutely no nerves at all. Where did that come from? It didn't come from me. God was changing me. This, this period of the kingdom of heaven is God changing people in their hearts, making them different, making them Christ-like and we exist in this world in the totality of this world as, as a portion, a slice of God's authority being reestablished in this world. I'll give you one more. We're not going to get to this to further parables, but let's back up. We see the size of the kingdom of heaven started out with 120 people in Jerusalem in the upper room, 33, But it grew. I don't think, I, maybe I didn't make it even big enough, but it's, it's about life. Because if you look at statistics, and we'll see something in a little bit, if you look at statistics, the people who profess to be Christians in the world today are about one third of the total 8 billion population in this world. minority. But ultimately then he'll establish the millennial kingdom and there'll be no more kingdoms in this world and his ultimate authority over this earth will be reestablished. Let's talk about the expansion of Christianity. In 1900 there was 5.6 million Christians worldwide according to I don't know. I don't know who counted them. I don't know how they know. But <laughs> this is put out by Gordon Cromwell Seminary. It's called the 22 Status of Global Christianity. There might be a 23 out by now, but that's the one I'm looking at. Five. <clears throat> 1900, 5.6 million people worldwide identified as Christian. By 2022, 2.56 billion people identify as Christian in this world. Or do you make. Difference. Well, it's, it's it's more noticeable now because the populations exploded. Now let's just say that half of this two point five six billion are tares not real believers. They go to church. They they look at their Christianity as a religion. It's works. It's a, it's a tradition. It's whatever. So, if we cut this in half to 1.28 billion, that's still a huge number. Consider that in 1900, 54% of the world was considered unevangelized, but in 2022, only 28% are considered unevangelized. There were 5 million Bibles in circulation in the world in 1900. Today, there's 1.8 billion Bibles in circulation. Jesus told us, don't get discouraged. We're on the winning team here, by the way. There is no other religion on the face of the planet that approximates that. 2.56. No other world religion, no other group, no other ism, cult, can even come close to that number. We somehow, sometimes get the idea that Islam is this huge thing taking over the world. It's not even close. Number's wise. Let's talk about some applications. I didn't give out verses to read. I just wanted to do it this way. I think we all need to open our Bibles and get out our devices and look at these few words. Let's flip over to Matthew 24. First of all, verses 13 and 14. Now Jesus is delivering the Olivet Discourse. He's speaking to his disciples. And he is answering the question, what will be the sign of your coming? Now, he answers that later on in chapter 24, but he's he's giving them a broad scope of what happens during the tribulation period, which will lead up to his coming. So he's speaking of the tribulation period. In Matthew 24, verse 13, he says, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. Now, I grew up in another denomination that thought you had to... Hang on to your salvation by what you did every day. And so I've had this verse quoted to me multiple times as a youngster, trying to scare me into, you know, <laughs> doing the right thing. But you know what? It doesn't work. It wasn't until I found out that salvation was a permanent gift that I really appreciated God and began to serve. It. Because having to endure and do things and to earn your way—that's not any assurance for anybody. Well, I just want you to notice that. He's not talking about spiritual salvation, eternal salvation. He's talking about physical survival during the tribulation period. And he's speaking to the Jewish people primarily, but in a broader context to all believers during the tribulation period who in danger are losing their lives. Many will be martyred. He's simply telling us some's going to endure in the year. Verse 14, then he just switches gears, pow, and says, the gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. <laughs> Even though you're going to be in difficult circumstances, you're going to be hounded, you're going to be hunted, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be martyred, uh, you're going to go out food because you don't receive the mark of the beast. all these things, in spite of all of that, this is going to be a period when the whole world, hears the gospel, How many people were still evangelized? According to that statistic we just saw, even yet today, 27%? It'll be 100%. 100% even in the tribulation. Now let's let's go a little further. Let's go over to Revelation chapter 6. So let's look a little bit more at what happens in the period. Revelation 6, at verse 9. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, it's the first of the five, or the first ser- series of judgments or events that happened in the tribulation, the fifth one, the fifth seal. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice, saying, How long? O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. This just simply tells us, not only will believers be persecuted, but believers are going to be present. I mean, all believers were snatched off of this earth at the rapture, which preceded this. So they began with 120 in Jerusalem, and we got up to a billion. You know, what is that? Uh, well, at least over a billion people today. That's just that's just today. That doesn't count all the people that lived and died that were Christians in previous centuries. After the rapture, they start with zero. And the whole world's evangelized, and there'll be all these people being martyred. There's going to be a lot of Christians there. Now let's go a little further. Let's go to Revelation 7. It's the next chapter over. At verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation of all tribes and people and tongues, Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out in a loud voice, saying, "Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb." These are people who come out of the tribulation, including the, and focusing here on on the martyrs, and there's so many they can't even. The scripture doesn't even begin to count so no man can count now remember remember the the chart the kingdom of heaven stretches from the first coming to the second coming and includes the tribulation so we haven't even seen the mustard plant reach its height you know often we think of the book of revelation we think of prophecy we think of all that's going to happen in that period, uh, the last week, Daniel's 70-week prophecy, and we think, oh, man, it's just going to be horrible, you don't want to live in that age, and you, 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 know, you want to make sure you're saved and you, you're spared by the rapture. Well, that's all true. But it doesn't mean it's, a, it's seven years of defeat for God, and then he comes back at the end and establishes the kingdom. It's seven years of success in terms of the mustard plan. Second application. Well, the first one is this. Although we are the minority, and the world is growing more corrupt by the day, we can still reach multitudes of people with the gospel. It's not time to put our heads down and give up and say, I hope Jesus comes soon because things are so bad. These things have always been bad for Christians. And they may well get worse. They're getting worse by the day in this culture we live. I mean, that whole thing that happened in, in Tennessee, the school. That's just outright hatred inspired from hell itself against Christians. That's a hate crime against Christians. But in spite of all of that, we don't have any reason to back up, back off Shut up, cower in the corner, or head into the mountains and hide out. We're the only thing in this world that's holding it together. Now we go back to Matthew 28 19 to 20. I want you to turn there. I know you know it. I know you don't have to turn there, but please turn there with me. Already know this is the Great Commission. Just before and shortly before Jesus, after his resurrection, shortly before he ascends back to heaven. And Jesus came up and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you. Even to the end of the age. We all know what that is. What I want to say to you is that the application here, based on what we've just studied today, is we must continue to do our part to obey the great Commission. <clears throat> to take the word part to heart. have a part to play. I suggest to you that when we witness to somebody that person comes to Christ, we're just one link in a long chain that God's been using to deal with that person's heart. We may be at the end of that process. We may be at the beginning of that process. We may be in the middle of that process. But unfortunately, I'm afraid That there's been so much emphasis on us, and we use terminology like "winning souls," "leading people," to and we get the we get the the thinking that it all depends on us. And then we try, and we and the guy in, in the bed that's about to die says, "No, I don't, I don't want to do that," anymore. and we're defeated. We're we just we just want to kind of pull her heads in and forget it, you know? It <clears throat> shouldn't be the response. By the way, the guy in the bed who said no got another call from my friend a few days later. He's back in the hospital. So I hurried to the hospital. I was determined this time. <laughs> I'm not gonna, I am not gonna let up. I'm gonna I'm gonna take the gospel and I'm gonna batter this guy's heart. And I did for like 30 minutes. And then I looked at him and I said, Would you like to receive Christ? say, Would you like to place your faith and have eternal life? And he looked up and he said, I've already done that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sometime, between my first visit and the second visit, he did think about it and he didn't. Or I don't know, he never explained it. Maybe somebody else talked to him. I have no idea. It wasn't me. It wasn't how much I implored him to be saved. It wasn't what I said. Other than the truth of the gospel is important. I, mean, I didn't convince him. The spirit of God dealt with him. <clears throat> I was just a little part of that. Hopefully. That's all we ever are. Now let's look in earnest at Matthew 28. Because you read it in English and it reads as a command Go, therefore. I once went to hear a few years ago a famous author, preacher speak in a big venue. The big church, because that's probably the only place he gets to. Get to. Anxious to hear it, and he's preaching on the Great Commission. And he says, "I've been in 28 countries this year. How many countries have you been to?" Well, I could faithfully count zero that year for me. I don't know. about I figure it's probably the case for most everybody else. Wrong emphasis, misunderstanding of the gospel. Your misunderstanding of the Great Commission, but yet you read it and now what it says? Go therefore and make disciples. No, it doesn't say go to all nations. And so go and make disciples of all nations. The Mark account says go and preach to me, preach the gospel all the world. It's ridiculous. To think God gave me the responsibility to go to every nation on earth before I die and preach the gospel. Why? Because this isn't a command here. Not the first word, not the first verb, it's not a command. Now it's a command here. It says, Go therefore and make disciples. The command is make disciples. That's the main verb. That's the imperative. That's the command make disciples. The phrase "go" therefore is a participle which, multi- which modifies the main verb. So, what he's telling us to do is to go and make disciples. The last word of "go and make disciples" sounds like two commands, but what he's saying is, "is make disciples and make them wherever you go." Now, God has a God is sovereign, and He can send us different places. Of his choosing. But he's probably not going to send us every place. Wherever God sends us, wherever life brings us, wherever we're at, wherever we're going, whatever we're doing, make disciples. Now let's talk about making disciples. Because making disciples is not evangelism. Making disciples includes evangelism, but it's not evangelism per se. So the Sunday school teacher of the four and five years old class who teaches the Bible at a time when they're, I know it happens, but for the most part, they're too young to really make that decision for themselves. That's that person's part in the Great Commission. The one who's been gifted musically Helps us worship. They're playing a part in the Great Commission. That music, the the, the 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 content of it, the truth, the Scripture contained in it, ministers to our hearts through music, and, and that makes disciples. When the preacher preaches on Sunday morning, and there's not a single solitary person here in this building that's an unbeliever. Now maybe I'm just giving an example. Maybe there's not a soul here that's an unbeliever. He preaches the Word of God, and God's people are edified. He's doing what he's Make it so don't despair, because I've had I've heard preachers say, "How many people have you won to the Lord in the last year?" i will tell you the answer to that for me: zero. I never won in my whole life. God does that; the Spirit of God does that. But the question is, what's my part today in the whole process? I'm gonna quit. I've preached enough. <laughs> you make <making> a disciple. <laughs> I'm sure there's a number of you probably have heard what I've just articulated. But I've taught this before, and I've had people come up to me and say, I never understood that. I always thought I was a second class Christian because I wasn't winning on so many people cross, and I wasn't a great witness I'm just guessing there's place of people here feel that way. Or have, have felt that
1: way. We've been made to feel that way. way. <laughs> What's that?
0: So We've been made to feel that way a lot of times. Yeah. and That's unfortunate. I'm not saying people have bad motives. They do it. But it's an unfortunate misunderstanding of There's people like the guy in the hospital room you're dealing with right now, and they're terminal. Um, not in the hospital. They haven't been diagnosed with anything bad, but they're terminal because we're all terminal. <laughs> Save the rapture, we're all terminal, real short, in real short order, okay? I'll turn 70 years old, and it seems like a bully eye. You, I know you you guys you guys understand that. I thought was important earlier in my life just to just have no, no value to me. You're learning the same time. What a joy to know we are a part of the greatest expanse of, for lack of a better word, the greatest religious revival in the history, and we're part of that. So it's worth keeping our keeping up doing our part. And, and we all know what we're talking to, and we we have some some ministry to somebody who's terminal. Sooner or later, pretty quickly, that's really, really, really important. I feel like I've talked the whole time, gotta give you guys a chance, this is I'm sorry. It's just the like of preachers, whenever you think you've got a short message, you just you just keep going. <laughs> speakers are general, right? Larry? you just, it just, it's the long messages, the things you think are long and short, and the ones you think are short, you think, know, kind I'll of just keep going. I intended to say everything I said, I just didn't realize I'd take that long. <laughs> Any questions though? Comments? I have a question. What was the answer to? <laughs> However, Jesus was not defining the physical composition of the plan but only the side. Thank you. I was signing a card. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I've got to the point where I try to put them all on the screen and then sometimes to get distracted. If you do this without a projector, to go from a screen. I have lots of those questions. I'll put it By the way, I don't do that. It's just because when i busy. I know for me, when I see something, when I interact and I write it down, that's going to stick a lot more than I just read it. It kind of focus. Anybody else? Question, comment?